Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. Hi, everybody, and welcome to this week's Talking Biotech podcast by Calabra. Now, one of the joys of hosting a podcast on biotechnology is that every week I get to geek out on an amazing new approach to solve an important problem. The new tools are super innovative, and each breakthrough has the potential to spur thousands of new approaches to a wide variety of important problems. And this is why biotech startups are everywhere. And while yesterday's new technology is rapidly morphing into tomorrow's or later today's solutions. The tools and innovation are there, but moving them to application takes a certain flavor of expertise, whether it's raising capital, managing teams or the business end or dealing with regulatory issues. It's something not every startup is good at or even excited about. Science is the fun part, right? At least for me. But some companies have navigated these waters and can serve as excellent partners for those that have a product and want to move it quickly towards the market need. Today's guest describes how her company has benefited from these kinds of collaborations, where a new technology gets winded at sales from proven partnership. Today's guest is Dr. Betsy O'Neill. She's the VP of External Innovation at Horizon Therapeutics. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. O'Neill. Thanks for having me. Yeah, well, this is a interesting set of topics because when we, we've been covering a lot of ground in the pharmaceutical area and then drug discovery, and there's still a lot of openings for new treatments and new therapies for different diseases. And a lot of these fall into the, the bucket of rare autoimmune inflammatory diseases. So why are these areas in particular areas for drug discovery? And what are some of the key issues that Horizon is hoping to focus on? Well, you know, it's an area we really like because as science has progressed over the last 20 years, we've learned a lot more about the immune system. I like to joke with my colleagues that when I was in grad school, there was like T cells and B cells and not very much else. But these days, all of the work that's been done, there's so many different cell types and so many different molecules that we can target with drugs that the just the learning in the field has been explosive. And that's really allowed us to go, you know, 20 years ago, there was a lot of focus on, you know, the big autoimmune conditions like rheumatoid arthritis, psoriasis, et cetera. And as we've learned more and more about how the immune system works and what drugs can target which cell types, we've really been able to narrow down into some of the smaller diseases, which are actually can be very, very severe, lupus, lupus nephritis, dermatomyositis. There's a bunch of different diseases that have very severe consequences for the patients who have them. And previously, there was very little work being done because of the small population. But now we really understand things so much better that there's a lot more activity in clinical development. A lot of people are looking at molecules for these diseases. Are there other, like of the main diseases or disorders that we don't consider to be autoimmune that have autoimmune edges to them so that you have some sort of a a dysfunction that leads to other problems that are related to the immune system? 
I mean, we tend to focus on ones that have more of a direct autoimmune component. There are some, there's a, there's an interesting kind of intertwinement, I would call it between autoimmune diseases and fibrotic diseases. So there are some diseases that have maybe an autoimmune component or a immune response that triggers a, a fibrotic response and then a tissue becomes fibrotic and that causes a specific type of pathology. And that's a newer area where people have been thinking about it for a while and done some work, but it's a tougher area to really get traction on the drug side. So our early stage group is looking closely at fibrosis as well as newer autoimmune mechanisms. And when you talk about these rare diseases or these, you know, small, I hate to say it, you know, from a business standpoint, but that's where we are. A small market diseases where you have a very limited number of, of potential people affected. How much of a problem are these in terms of, so I know it sounds callous, you know, there's just a couple of people or, you know, smaller populations that have it. So big companies are not willing to get excited about the expensive R and D process to solve a problem that not that many people have. They focus on big ones. How many, how much of this is a problem in what you're looking at for drug development? Well, under the FDA rule, a kind of an orphan to get orphan drug designation, which is a special designation granted by FDA for drugs to treat rare diseases. It's patients fewer than fewer than 200,000 patients in the U.S. So it's still fairly big. You get down to we would consider maybe ultra rare type of diseases that get more into the like hundreds or like single digit thousands of patients, you know, and there's different ways to address that's, that's kind of a big range of patient numbers on the larger side, you can still make some decent revenue with an acceptable price point. When you get down to the very ultra rare ones, you wind up getting a, a higher price point, but some of these diseases are very, very severe. And the, you know, there's a science called pharmacoeconomics where you kind of balance what's the benefit of the drug and, and and what's the suffering of the patient without the drug. So some patients with very these very ultra rare, very serious diseases actually can be a very expensive burden anyway. So you can justify economically, you know, a price point that works both for payers and for patients and these very, very small diseases. Horizon in particular, we, we don't do ultra rare Per se, some of our drugs may wind up working in an ultra-rare type of setting for immune diseases, but a lot of the ultra-rare ones tend to be more like genetic diseases, which is not a focus for our particular research team. Well, right in your title, you're the Vice President of External Innovation. And what exactly does that mean? And what kind of products do you focus on? Well, you know, we decided to actually create a department and name it external innovation. The reason for that is because, you know, we have a very strong, capable group of research scientists, clinical development experts in our R&D team. We have very great, talented folks, but it, there's always, however good your internal group is, there's always going to be more people outside that are also smart and capable and talented. And the only way to sort of keep track of all the exciting developments and be able to participate and, you know, when new science comes out is to have a group that's dedicated to looking externally. So we look externally and we bring in opportunities for our internal team to evaluate. And so we're always kind of on the hunt for new drugs. And we work very closely with our business development team and licensing group to bring in, it could be 
very early stage research project. It could be a drug that's undergoing clinical development, or it could be even an approved drug. So we look across the gamut, but our remit is to focus what's new, what's exciting, what fits our strategy externally, and how can we work on bringing it in-house and taking advantage of the capabilities and skill set that we have at Horizon to make the drug more successful. So a lot of smaller companies may have really great science, really great ideas made of really exciting potential drug, but they may not have the finances or the operational ex ability to execute the, these big global clinical studies you need to get global approvals. And we really have that. So it can be a really nice partnership where each party kind of does what they're good at is how I always like to frame it. Like if we find interesting science, we say to them, like, how can we make this better? What can we do to make this drug be better? I see. So do you have some example of different companies you might be collaborating with and what kind of projects you're currently working on? Sure. Sure. We've got a couple early stage ones that we're working. We have, we, on the, on the research side, preclinically for the really novel new cutting edge stuff, we actually have a couple different target discovery collaborations. We would frame it as where we're trying to find like what protein in the body could we target with a drug that would help treat a disease. So for example, we have a one on gout targets with a company called Hemoshear. And then we also have a collaboration with a company called Alpine Immune Sciences. And that one's actually a drug discovery. So there we have ideas for targets that we want to go after. And they have this really great scientific approach for generating drugs. They can be bi-specific or multi-specific. So it's kind of a multi two-armed biologic drug that actually can touch two different targets and maybe bring cell, two different cell types into close proximity. Or you could bring two different receptors on one cell next to each other to stimulate signaling through a pathway. So it's a kind of a newer approach. We call it bifunctional that we're working with Alpine on. So those are two preclinical examples. That's a really good one. And what about with uh, academic institutions? So, you know, as an academic scientist, I, I see so many interesting opportunities to integrate with companies that have the firepower to elevate our work, you know, beyond what we can do from state, federal, or local funding. So what kind of partnerships are useful in an academic context? Well, you know, there's a bunch of different types. It can be what I would make a bucket, I would say sort of tool. So academics are great at building out like mouse models and really getting under the hood and looking closely at a lot of biology. So we can really collaborate. Like if someone may have developed a mouse model for a particular disease, but they don't have the capability to make a drug. So we may have drugs. So that's again, like a great collaboration. They have this really interesting mouse model with which reflects disease pathology. And we have like four or five different molecules we're not really sure which one's going to be the best drug, but we, if we test them in the animal model, then we can find out like what's the best idea. And that can extend to other types of things beyond animal models as well. It could be a really cool cellular-based assay, or it could be some really cool imaging or, you know, the latest PET or MRI type of technology for scanning patients or, you know, diagnosing and, and, and profiling disease states. So there's a lot of different, you know, really cool cutting edge technologies that happen at universities, but it really helps to bring in somebody who has like the, the, the molecules and the clinical development expertise to be able to take that forward 
and be able to spread it around to other centers and and other and more patients, access to more patients too. Yeah, and this you know podcast is talking biotech, so we talk about biotechnology. What role does biotechnology play in the development of your pipeline, or maybe just in the collaboration? I mean, biotechnology is a very broad term. I mean, as an industry. You know, we're Horizon Therapeutics. I sort of consider us as a big biotech company. There's, and historically, biotechnology referred to biologic drugs. So, you know, Genentech making the original kind of antibody drugs. That was kind of differentiating small molecule pharmaceutical companies who maybe t- take a small molecule and make it into a pill with oral administration versus biotech which was kind of meant protein drugs that are maybe IV infusions type of a thing. So, I mean, both approaches can be very, very powerful. You know, you get a, a benefit of less frequent dosing with an infusion, but you have to go to the infusion center and get the infusion. They have different safety profiles. So there's a lot of differences. And, you know, my viewpoint is like, we got a lot of diseases. We have a lot of people suffering Let's just hit it at all the different, all the different, we call it modalities, whether it's a small molecule for a pill, a biologic for an IV infusion. We've got, we don't work on gene therapy, but I'm following it very closely because I'm passionate about it. You know, gene therapies, there's all these different kind of modality and approaches to, to attack these diseases to help the patients. Yeah. So we're speaking with Betsy O'Neill. Dr. O'Neill is the VP of External Innovation at Horizon Therapeutics. And we're talking about what her company does in the area of new drug design for autoimmune and rare diseases, about the specific roles of different kinds of partnerships. And on the backside of the break, we'll talk about the new innovations that are actually hitting the ground and the pipeline of things to expect. This is Calabra's Talking Biotech Podcast, and we'll be back in just a moment. This episode is brought to you by Calabra, the data monitoring platform designed to reveal research insights and streamline reporting across your organization. With Calabra, you'll gain a comprehensive view of your research workflows, simplifying scientific IP governance, compliance, and analysis. Visit Calabra.app to learn how you can transform your research process today. C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P. And now we're back on Collabra's Talking Biotech podcast. And before we return to our regular guest, we're going to talk to Dr. Vega Shah. And she is planning a Twitter thread that will introduce you to some exciting areas of biotechnology. So welcome to the podcast, Vega. Thank you. Yeah. Could you tell me a little bit about your plan? plan is to put out a thread featuring a startup every Saturday, so it's called Startup Saturdays, with with two goals. The first goal is to just highlight the amazing technology that's coming out of startups right now in biotech. I live in the Bay Area, and there are about 3,000 biotech companies here. Quite a few of those are startups. They're just doing amazing work. There's this rich ecosystem of startups. The other goal is to help folks in academia that are either working on their PhD or postdoc to introduce them to these new companies so that they can imagine themselves in, you know, alternative roles outside of academia. I know that startups are often recruiting talent that are coming out of academia. 
So it's a very mutually beneficial relationship. Having a, a startup job right after you finish your PhD or you've done a postdoc is really great. You wear a lot of hats and you learn a lot of different skills in the private sector. So those are two goals. We'll be doing this every week, uh, a thread featuring a single startup. I'll talk about, you know, what stage are they at? What's the technology they're working on? whether or not they're hiring and what types of roles they're hiring for. That's really cool. So you're going to do this on a Twitter thread every Saturday about 10 a.m. Pacific time, which is what, 1 p.m. Eastern time. And what kind of content will be in that thread? The goal is to provide content that's useful for folks that are either looking for services or technology to use in their research. So that helps the startups, but then also to provide information about what types of roles they're hiring for that helps folks that are, you know, in academia and they can kind of get, get exposed to that information and maybe even apply to jobs at startups. And if I'm a hot startup that wants to get on your thread, do I send you an edible arrangement or what do I do to have you represent me? Not edible arrangement, not necessary. Just send me a message on Twitter and maybe a short blurb about your startup, you know, what's your technology and, you know, what, what you'd like to feature. I've been very open to most startups. I do want to kind of focus on certain types of startups. So bear sequencing technologies, drug discovery, but really those are just sort of broad, you know, broad goals. It, it, it's not as restrictive as that. So yeah, just send me a message. Happy to put folks on in the queue to be featured. And I think you'll find a lot of audience for this. I get so many solicitations at Talking Biotech. There's no way I could possibly have them all on. So definitely, if you're a startup that's out there looking for more of exposure to, for your business, or if you're a student or postdoc or a scientist looking for maybe a different hat to wear inside the biotech area, Vega's Twitter feed is an excellent one to check out. So where can they find this? My my Twitter handle, which is Dr. underscore Alpha Lyre, D-R underscore A-L-P-H-A-L-Y-R-A-E. I really love the idea. Twitter's a great place to be able to expose lots of professionals to your work and then maybe spread that on LinkedIn and some of the other places where eggheads hang out and look for this kind of content. So thank you very much for joining me today. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me. And now we're back on Collabro's Talking Biotech podcast. We're speaking with Dr. Betsy O'Neill. She's the VP of External Innovation at Horizon. And external innovation, as we talked about previously, is this idea of partnering with smaller companies and academics that maybe don't have the resources to be able to take their product to the next level. And we are talking about potential pipeline and that kind of thing. What are some of your favorite notions that are working through the pipeline, which have come from those early stage collaborations. Yeah, you know, here's another really interesting example that I like where we have a collaboration with a company called Arrowhead and their technology is called siRNA technology. And what they do is they actually take, make a little target, it's a nucleic acid and it targets the mRNA within the cell. So if you have a, you know, a gene that you know is being expressed and it's causing a problem and you wanna knock it down, to, to give therapeutic benefit to the patient, you can take advantage of this kind of pre-existing machinery in the cell that originally is used to kind of detect, you know, 
inappropriate nucleic acid in the body. So it'll knock down mRNA, like say from a virus or something like that. But we kind of can coattail onto it. And Arrowhead's one of the companies who's developed this interesting siRNA approach where we we design a little guide strand of RNA, which goes into the cell and then attacks the mRNA for a gene of interest, thereby knocking down expression of that gene. So, you know, in our small molecular biologics world that we were talking about before, there's only certain targets that are amenable to having a small molecule interfere with their activity or a biologic interfere. But with siRNA, you can kind of target anything you want because all of the proteins expressed in your body go through an, an RNA stage at some point in time. So the trick for that one is getting good delivery of this siRNA drug. And so Arrowhead, along with several others, have attached a, a Galnac, it's a carbohydrate moiety, to the end of the, of the target drug that causes very good delivery to the liver. So if you have a liver disease, it's just like super quick and easy to knock down right now using this Galnac targeted siRNA approach. And a bunch of other companies, including Arrowhead, are now looking into trying to target to other tissues because we know this siRNA approach is so efficient at knocking down mRNA levels and knocking down protein levels of, you know, kind of any gene you want. So it's kind of turning from a what target should I go after game into a how can I deliver my siRNA to the right tissue within the body game? It's pretty exciting because we've spoken on this podcast with a number of companies which are using targeted nanoparticles. So lipid nanoparticles mm -hmm. and this kind of thing, like the COVID vaccine, essentially being able to target specific RNAs into specific tissues like cardiac tissue is one good example. But it seems like this whole, I think, this whole idea is really evolving very quickly if we can get RNA in the right place. Are there other examples other than the liver drug? Yeah, there's plenty of other examples. People are going after a number of different muscular diseases. So muscular is a new area. There are some genetic diseases, typically gain of function, sort of genetically dominant diseases where inappropriate gene expression is occurring or too much of a particular gene is being expressed, where you can go in and knock it down with siRNA. It's interesting that you bring up the COVID vaccines because those are actually delivering mRNA. So it's kind of like the opposite, like the technology is kind of similar in a lot of ways. But on the one hand, you're delivering mRNA to get expression of a gene of interest. In the case of a COVID vaccine, that would be like the antigen you want the body to make, you know, antibodies against to protect you against COVID. And in, in these cases with the siRNA, you're actually knocking down a gene that's causing pathology in a patient. So it's kind of like two sides of the same coin, but they both have in common, you know, this kind of delivery challenge is a big piece of it on both sides. Yeah, actually, we've been doing it in plants for a long time. We've been taking, well, some groups have taken siRNAs and introduced them just with clay nanoparticles, bound them to little pieces of clay mm. and shot them. This is a Dr. Nina Mitter in, in Australia and has been able to suppress specific susceptibility genes, which lead to plant disease. Interesting. And yeah, so, so really interesting stuff because you know how to ignite those aspects of the plant immune system by removing or but at least these things become systemic after you introduce them. So pretty cool stuff. Yeah, really cool. Wow, I didn't know about that. Yeah, pretty neat. So what are some other good examples of collaborative partnerships which have given rise to new opportunities based on that collaboration? 
Well, maybe I'll talk about another one that we have. We, we recently announced a collaboration with a company called Q32Bio. They're a private company out of the Boston area. And they have an antibody drug that they're, they're initiating testing in humans. So it's an early stage clinical candidate. And it's, it's against a target called IL-7R receptor alpha. So, it's, so it blocks signaling through the IL-7 receptor. And that's an interesting, it's an interesting case because it interferes with the immune system in patients with autoimmune diseases in a way that we think is going to really provide benefit. There's a lot of early animal data and whatnot that look, makes this look pretty interesting. The thing that's a little bit unique about this relationship is that it's actually an option structure. So they're, 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 we're funding the studies and they're performing the early work. And if, it, if those studies go well, then we'll, those small pilot studies they're doing, the early stage first in human testing in a small clinical study, we call it, we would call it proof of concept to show that, you know, it looks like the drug is working, maybe through a biomarker versus, you know, dosing long enough to see clinical benefit. And then we, if the data look good, then we have the option to step in and take it into a big, what we would call a pivotal study, which is the thing you need for the final approval through FDA. So that one's interesting, maybe a little bit more on the business aspect where, you know, again, but each party, it's like, what are you good at? Each party can do what they're good at. And that's, that's one thing we really like to take advantage in terms of our external innovation strategy is the do what you're good at. So they have this very interesting drug. They've initiated some early work and we want to participate and see the data as it's coming out and then step in to do the really big studies that require, you know, more operational scale and funding and all that to be able to then bring it to patients. Okay. Well, you know, so your model works and this is you as the, you know, vice president of external innovation and identifying these potential opportunities. But we have a pretty wide listenership of diverse, diverse listeners. If somebody has a clever solution, are you actually solicited by others who come in and say, we have a new technology we think you'd like to see? Oh yeah, we do a lot of that. You know, part of my, the remit for my team is we will call it sourcing of new ideas. And we have actually a whole sort of sourcing strategy that we undertake to try to go out there and find new ideas, whether it's from companies, whether it's from academics or from even like colleagues at the company. We're really very proactive at trying to find good ideas, good new ideas. You know, there's a, I, I jokingly call it speed dating. There are conferences in the business development you know, area within biotechnology where you attend a conference and before you go to the conference, there's a, there's a computer interface, you know, you can look through companies that may have some technology you're interested in, and then you can set up 30 minute meetings with them face to face. And so it's like speed dating. You get up in the morning and every 30 minutes you meet with another company for like two or three days. And then it's (laughs) a really great way to get a really quick impression and figure out like which ones to prioritize for further evaluation. And it is a really good approach because there's so many collaborations that can come from smart people getting together. And I, I, I totally believe in that. I think that it's a lot of fun to take people who you know have heads full of solutions and turn them loose on a common problem. And that kind of innovation maybe doesn't happen enough because companies are rather insular and protective of their IP and their strategies. You know, how much of, how much would we maybe benefit if we had more of this kind of open collaboration? I mean, I think it's crucial actually. And this, one of the reasons why 
you know, I mean, there's many reasons why I'm glad COVID's over, but one of the reasons I'm glad COVID is over is because we're back to the face-to-face forum where you can just sit in a room for 30 minutes and, you know, each side has like sort of, you know, prearranged ideas to talk about, but then you can have you know, usually 15 minutes to just kind of brainstorm and throw throw ideas around, whether it's a new collaboration structure, it's a different application for the science. I mean, Biology is complicated. Medicine is complicated. Like no one person is going to have the solutions to, you know, help patients with these very serious diseases we see. It takes a village from drug discovery to drug development to manufacturing, all of these pieces. And it's only by getting together and sharing information, sharing ideas is the best way to come up with solutions. I mean, I work at a company. I'm practical. I actually have a bit of a patent background. So it's important to be able to get you know, intellectual property and patents and all that. But, you know, so that's a crucial piece of it. But I think the being transparent and open to the extent you can really is the way to win. And it's only by combining two and three and four smart heads together that you really get to the answers that, that to, to solve these complicated problems. There's a lot of smart people out there, but these things require more than one smart person to solve them, you know? No, very true. You know, so can you tell me more about the immediate pipeline? So where are the, what are the current set of therapeutics and where are they in their different stages of, of clinical testing? Sure. I'd love to tell you a little bit more about a couple of them. So, you know, and within our, we have a couple of different therapeutic areas, but one of the larger ones uh, is under this kind of autoimmune umbrella. So it's kind of some rheumatology, some dermatology, some nephrology. So targeting slightly different organs, but kind of underlying the molecular mechanisms are kind of in the immunology side of things. So I'll tell you about a couple of drugs we have in our pipeline, our clinical development, clinical development pipeline right now. So one is called, you know, if these generic names are, are terrible to remember, but Dazodalabep, it's called, we call it Daz for short. <laughs> And, you know, it targets something called CD40L. So any of your audience members, maybe if you took immunology at some point, I know I took it quite a while ago and it was the CD40, CD40L axis. It's referred to as the co-stimulation pathway. And it's a place within the immune system where B cells and T cells talk to each other. And if, you know, your immune system, if you think about it, they're out kind of scavenging around trying to find infections, right? I found a bacteria over here. I found a cell infected with virus over here, right? And once somebody finds something, they need to go tell all their friends to like proliferate up and build up a big immune response, make more antibodies, make more T cells to attack, right? So this co-stimulation pathway is like really at the core, really at the heart of the immune system where the B cells and the T cells are together and they're like, Oh no, you won't believe what I saw. We got to take action, guys. Like <laughs> marshalling the troops, if you will, right? So that drug, we actually just recently announced some new data in Sjogren's syndrome, which is an autoimmune condition that affects more women than men, but it affects a lot of different secretory glands. So people tend to have very dry eyes, very, very dry mouths. You know, they have to tape their eyelids shut at night and stuff. It can be very serious. And it's a it's a disease where nothing's really approved right now. So our initial proof of concept in that disease looks really interesting. So we're going to put that into a big pivotal study and try to get it approved and, and get that out to patients as soon as we can. And that one, you know, we're testing that in some other settings as well. We have a little bit of data in rheumatoid arthritis. We're looking at it in kidney transplant rejection. And this is one where, again, like 
in these, we, we have this term we coin as pipeline and a product, if you will. So one drug where you can treat multiple diseases, it's, it's kind of a, a good like business synergy, you know, where you got one molecule, you do all the manufacturing, the early stage testing, and then you can try it out in a couple of diseases where you think the pathology is implicated. So we really like that pipeline and a product idea. And so those are a couple of the, you know, CD40L diseases that we're going after. And then maybe I'll tell you about a second drug we have called again, which is a funny name, Daxdilimab. <laughs> These generic names, we call this one, we just call this one Dax for short. So we call them Daz. And, and this one actually binds to a type of cells called plasmacytoid dendritic cells. It's a little bit of a mouthful. We call them PDCs for short. And what those things do is they recruit these kind of effector cells and they are, they produce tons of neurons and other molecules that really help stimulate and amplify the immune response. And so again, like this is a, you know, someone who took immunology quite a few years ago, <laughs> this is sort of a newer cell type, you know, the B and T cells have been around forever and people have been working on them forever in this like core, you know co-stimulation pathway with DAS is super exciting. This one is like a little bit newer going after these cells that go out there and produce tons of interferon, which is helpful if you're having a viral infection, but it's not so helpful if it's the re result of an autoimmune reaction, right? Where your body's inappropriately recognizing, you know, a native protein and thinking that it's a component of an infection and worrying up a whole immune defense against it inappropriately. That's the kind of underlying basis for autoimmune conditions. So this one we think is really exciting because it actually goes out there. It's an antibody-based drug and it actually kills these PDCs. So it just depletes them. And then they can't be, you know, doing this inappropriate job they're doing of secreting all these molecules that are continuing to stimulate and amplify this inappropriate immune response. So we think that one's going to be very exciting too. So let me give you some diseases for that one. So I don't know if you've heard of this one called alopecia areata. It's a it's a disease where people have patchy hair loss on their on their on their scalp. It's an autoimmune condition. People don't realize that, but it's you get multiple big large bald spots potentially all the way up to, you know, all or most of the hair on your head can fall off. And that one's you know, it can be pretty upsetting to have have that experience. And then we have a couple that are more kind of affect the skin a little bit more. There's one called dermatomyositis, which has both a skin component and a muscle component. Again, autoimmune mechanism, a lot of evidence for these PDC cells in that one. And then we kind of have three different clinical studies that are theme and variation on an autoimmune condition called lupus that you may have heard of. And they, the that's a, it's a tough to treat disease because patients with lupus can have d different organs affected. So some patients have this thing called discoid lupus, which is actually a skin manifestation of lupus. Some people have something called lupus nephritis, which is a kidney manifestation that can be very serious and hurt your, you know, your kidney function. And then there's actually systemic lupus as well, where you know, you have multi-organ involvement. So we're looking actually at all three of those, each in a different clinical study. And again, we're very excited about those. We don't have the data back from all of those yet, but we think there's a really, really high potential, you know, for these things to work out. We'll see, you know, you, the data, the, the, the data is what'll tell us in the end, but we, the science is so interesting on this and so we can't wait to see the data coming out.
Well, it seems like this really acts at this razor's edge of the immune system that when you're talking about T and B cell communication through the CD40L receptor and all this stuff, if you start to inhibit that communication, how much do you affect immune response that is appropriate? So something like COVID, you know, SARS-CoV-2 comes along and can you still mount an effective immune response or at least let's say a long-term immune memory because of the B cell involvement when you, when you have a standard infection that shows up? No, that's a really great question. It's a really important question as well. And one of the challenges with going after any of these kind of immune-mediated diseases, autoimmune conditions, is it's always a balance between how much am I helping the disease pathology against how much am I putting a patient at risk for a more severe infection. You know, you watch all these TV commercials and they have all these, like, risks at the end, but the risks are real. And, you know, we only treat... We, we treat almost exclusively patients with very, very serious diseases. And, you know, they have to talk with their doctor about, like, what's the trade-off here between, you know, what symptoms am I having and what pathology is being caused by my disease and what's the risk of an infection. Secondarily, it's also if I get an infection, what happens? So, for example, you know, like with COVID, it's, was very, very, very scary early on, and it's still scary, but now we can have, you know, kind of these antibody drugs or the small molecule drugs, you know, that, that, that your doctor can give you a therapy to treat the infection, right? So if you get a, if you're at higher risk for a bacterial infection, as long as those infections are responsive to antibiotics, you know, your doctor may decide that that's an acceptable trade-off, you know? So it's only if you were to get infections that are hard to treat is more concerning. So that's, it's always a balance. You know, I wish, you know, as someone who works in the pharmaceutical biotechnology industry, you know, I wish I could provide people with a silver bullet, a drug that doesn't have any side effects, but these are, you know, these are biologically active agents and they're very powerful drugs. And, you know, you always are going to have some kind of balance between safety and efficacy we work really hard in the background in lab to try to tweak it so we get the efficacy as much as we can get and minimize safety risk. But it's hard. It's kind of it's kind of impossible to get a perfect drug in that way. No, I totally understand that. And I, I know people who've had lupus. I knew someone who had MS years ago where they had a very nice drug that came out. It was an excellent therapeutic for MS, antibody-based, but, but could cause in a rare number of cases an extreme type of brain cancer, this PML stuff would show up and it took the drug off the market for a while. And he was devastated by this mm -hmm. because he had finally had a therapy that worked. Eventually it came back with one of these black box registrations where they yep. would allow the drug, but it was here. You had something that worked and his opinion was I'll take my chances with the drug <laughs> because, because, because it's giving me the relief I need from the problem I have. I'll risk the problem I don't have. You know, it's, it's so interesting that you raised that example. I remember that the case when that happened and, you know, there was actually an advisory committee at the FDA where you know, they pulled it from, voluntarily pulled the drug for a year and looked into, you know, my point earlier, is there some way we can treat this disease? They were doing like plasma exchange to try to pull the drug out of circulation and figure out ways to treat it right. But when they went back to FDA to talk about it, 
what happened were they had there's a, a any kind of advisory committee like that. There's a port FDA presents for a portion, the company seeking approval for a drug presents for a portion, and then there's a portion that's dedicated to patients, a kind of members of the public. It's typically patients or representative of patients groups. So many patients wanted to talk that they had to schedule a second day for patients to come back a second day and talk some more. And everyone was saying exactly what you're saying, which is like, we realize this is a risk, but it's extremely rare and they're working on ways to treat it. So don't take the drug away from us because I have multiple sclerosis. I'm going to wind up in a wheelchair. I mean, we there literally were patients in that clinical study who had been in wheelchairs who were up and walking again and had independent mobility after taking that drug. So it's a very, it's a funny that you mentioned that case because that's actually kind of a, a very well-known case in our industry of, you know, this hard conversation between safety and efficacy. One of the other benefits of working as identifying small companies with kind of niche therapies for important diseases to small numbers of people is the ability to change the lives of people who maybe suffer from a given ailment or given problem that it isn't going to be looked at by most pharmaceutical companies. So could you give me a couple more examples of where this, this model really works? Yeah, Kevin, I mean, one thing that's a little different, you know, in terms of innovation, a lot of companies in our sector will start from some very interesting science in the lab, and then they'll move into clinical development, and then they'll move through to commercialization. I would con consider that as kind of the, you know, the typical model of how, you know, a new biotech company is formed, generally speaking. But Horizon Therapeutics is very interesting in that we actually were built in the reverse direction. So our company was founded by a small group of folks with commercial expertise, and they had an original drug that was a, you know, a smaller drug to, to treat inflammatory pain. And they sold that drug and that was profitable because they had very small R&D you know, group to support that because the drug was already approved. And they reinvested that back into this rare disease model, you know, which is sort of 10 or 12 years ago. And they started licensing in drugs that were approved for very rare, very serious diseases and took their commercialization expertise and used that to kind of make sure as many patients as possible really getting access to the drug. And then from there, they started licensing in clinical stage drugs, the first one being our, our medicine we have for thyroid eye disease. You know, it's a, it's a disease that's treated by oculoplastic surgeons who, you know, the traditional therapy was via surgical procedure for that disease. Mm -hmm. And the, a small company had been founded to look into it, and they had some very interesting early data, but a lot of the other, you know, they sort of, you know, looked around for someone who might be interested in partnering with them. And a lot of the other companies passed on the opportunity because they we're looking for, you know, something more traditional, like we want a drug for rheumatologists, we want a drug for dermatologists, et cetera. And this oculoplastic surgeon was a very small group of folks, but it's a very serious disease and there's a pretty good number of patients that have it. And, you know, I was not at the company at the time, but I remember watching the story in the news and I thought it was so innovative of Horizon to be able to take a chance on this, like, group of physicians who typically do surgery and don't even write prescriptions for complicated drugs and try to convert 
you know, patients have to undergo the surgical procedure where, you know, the, the, the surgeon has to sort of take your eye out and scrape away this fibrotic tissue that surrounds your optic nerve and then kind of put your eye back into the socket. And we, you know, these guys came up with this medicine to do it instead. So I thought that was very innovative and I was really impressed that they kind of took a chance on this disease that there were no, no one else was looking at drugs to treat and converting something from a kind of painful surgery into something that could be treated with a, with a, you know, six court, six one force infusions instead. So I thought that was pretty innovative and they've just kind of built on the success from there. There's several other examples of, you know, drugs they brought in along the way. We have a, a drug for very, a medicine for very severe gout, which was also in license to, had just been approved. And our, again, our commercial organization was actually really pivotal in helping doctors understand how to best use the drug. It's a little bit complicated drug to use. So really need some support to get it to be used right, to really benefit patients that have these gouts. Um, a disease caused by accumulation of too much serum uric acid. And it can get to the point where patients actually grow crystals of uric acid in their joints. So it's kind of considered as a form of arthritis because you get the severe joint pain. And it's kind of like a basic biochemical situation, like forming crystals, like super saturation. If, and if you remember your chemistry class, you know, and this drug is able to really destroy a lot of that serum uric acid and bring patients back to having much better functioning joints. But it's a little tricky to use. And our commercial team really was it was crucial in, in getting it out there and getting so many more patients using it. Well, Dr. Betsy O'Neill, thank you very much for joining me. It's really impressive how this kind of collaboration can lead to new products for niche conditions and really form a, a nucleus around conditions that need some attention. So if people want to learn more about Horizon Therapeutics, is there a website they can look for? And where are you in social media? Sure, of course. Come just go to horizontherapeutics.com. You know, our innovation section, there's a business development page there where, you know, new ideas can come in through that. We're also present, of course, on LinkedIn for Horizon Therapeutics or on Twitter. You can look, you can find us under Horizon News is our handle for Twitter. Very good. Well, thank you very much for joining me today. I really appreciate your time. And if you have big breakthroughs, I should say when you have big breakthroughs, let me know and we'll be happy to talk about them here. All right. Great talking to you today, Kevin. Thanks. And for everybody else, thank you again for listening to another week of Talking Biotech Podcast. Remember that the diseases that don't make the front page are still affecting some folks and that it's important that small companies are carrying that mantle where maybe the payoffs aren't great and the road is just as rigorous to drug development. But companies like Horizon Therapeutics are lending their expertise to help make that transition to the marketplace a little bit easier. This is the Talking Biotech Podcast, and we'll talk to you again next week. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at calabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.